So last week, if you weren't here, very briefly, I want to say that Jesus gathered his disciples and uh, his core disciples, other disciples, and all of these folks around him, and he begins to teach. And he starts this message, right? And he does so in a curious way. I'm calling it a curious way uh, that would immediately get the attention of all who are listening. And here's what he says. He starts to present these sort of contradictory statements. And he says that, uh, listen, if you're lacking in this, this, or this, then you're blessed. And, of course, there are four things that he shares there. But he emphasizes a central point in this. And he says that those who are lacking, they're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is to say their hope is in the kingdom that Messiah brings or that I am bringing, if we want to personalize this from Jesus' point of view. So... As we go into this part this week, it's important for us to remember. I want to make sure that I keep this together and for us to always be thinking about this. Number one, what we sang this morning, the idea that, uh, that we serve a God that uh, is all there is. Like, he is it. Like, his is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. And so anything that we're going to talk about today, anything that Jesus talks about, has to fit within that framework. Right, That we serve a God that is amazing, that he's above everything, that, that uh, he guides what happens, that he holds, to use the phrase, the whole world in his hand, so to speak. And so it's important for us to remember that when Jesus teaches his disciples, and that includes us, what his kingdom will look like. He shared this whole thing as a complete message. He didn't do just the blesseds and then pack it up for a week and then come back the next week. And cover the next section. Now, we do that because we have limited time, right? So we're going to compartmentalize this a little bit. But I want you to always be thinking that as we talk about this stuff, this was one message. And it's an amazing message. And so we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. And so here's where Jesus starts, at least for us this week. After all the blesseds and after the woes, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I think that's enough for today. Let's pray, right? That, that's challenging. Right? I don't know about you, but every time I read that passage or passages like that, I'm like, yeah, kind of lame. Puts things in perspective. For the people that Jesus was speaking to, he's signaling something. He's signaling a coming reversal that God's economy works way different than the standards of the world. And I think this is evidence of it right here. The world standard is the first part of all these things, like to hate our enemies instead of loving them or to curse those that curse you. Or to abuse those that abuse us. But the world that Jesus is talking about is this world that's flipped upside down. And it all begins from our standpoint with this loving response in the face of evil. And so when I was thinking about this passage this week, I started, I always start with questions. I start to ask myself questions about this. And uh, this was a pretty easy one. I started to ask things like, well, what about that whole eye for an eye thing? 
in the beginning of the Bible. So is that just gone? And did God change his mind? Did God soften his stance? Or what about all the times when God commanded his people to take up arms? What do we do with that? Or was Jesus truly a pacifist? Is that what he's saying here? And how does this work in real life situations for us? Like, what about the times where we're thrust into war? Or we have to respond to something that's happening in our world. Or what about the boundaries uh, in our lives? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't have boundaries? That we should just, basically, if people come along and they need something, that they just take it from us? Even if they're constantly taking. What about the times where people take scriptures like this and they misuse them in cases of abuse? How is that justice? So these are all the questions that I was asking and a whole lot more. But today, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and unpack some of the tension here. Because there is a tension between justice and mercy. And that's actually what Jesus is talking about today. And just to define those for you guys and how we're going to talk about it. Justice is getting what you deserve. But mercy is getting something you don't deserve. So in the case of justice would be, oh, I did something wrong. And so therefore, here's the punishment for that. But in the case of mercy, it would be, oh, I did something wrong, but you know what? We're going to go easy on you. So that's the difference. So Jesus, what he does here is he issues four challenges, four challenges and four responses. And uh, these basically test the very limits of grace and mercy, in my opinion. And so we're going to pick up the first two challenges and responses, and they're found here in Luke 27. So the first two, to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate you. Now, you have to remember that Jesus was saying all of this in this environment where people were being persecuted for their beliefs. And not only that, but uh, in the coming days, especially uh, once Jesus had given his life and then rose again, the persecution was even going to increase more. And so a lot of the words that he's sharing is in direct reference to persecution. You might be familiar with this here in Proverbs 25. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. How many of you have heard this verse before, especially the, the burning coals part, right? If you've heard that, it probably means that you grew up in church. And so throughout all my life in church, I've heard all kinds of explanations about this one. Uh, one of the explanations I heard was, be so nice that it makes your enemy even more angry. Or, kill them with kindness so that they just get more frustrated with you and then they'll turn to the Lord. Which doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Or, well, you know, the more that someone despises you in God's name, the hotter their section of hell is going to be. I've heard that. Yeah. Want to know what this is really about? Back in this day, people heated their homes with coal. And so sometimes a person's fire would go out in the middle of the night and they wake up to this cold house. And uh, at that point, you know, in life, of course, you could freeze to death. And so that person would need to borrow some coals in order to restart his stove. So he would go to his neighbor's house and say, hey, dude, can I get some coals? Because my stove went out overnight. And so the idea of giving a person uh, coals in a pan to carry on his head home was a neighborly act. It was actually a kind act. It was actually doing something good for someone that was in need. So if you follow what Yeshua is saying here, the idea isn't that you just give your enemy one coal to heat their home. Well, here's one. See what you can do with that. No, the idea is that you would give them this generous portion, maybe giving them all of your coals except for one. 
making it easy or maybe even unnecessary for them to restart their fire. That's what this refers to. So let me ask you a question. Who are the enemies in your life? Oh, I don't have any enemies. (laughs) Bernardo has enemies. They're called dogs. He's a postman, right? But who are the enemies in your life? Like maybe your nemesis is the mean supervisor at work or that person at school that treats you poorly or that one client that just seems to always get under your skin. The person that's always talking bad about you. Maybe an ex-wife or an ex-husband. Or maybe a family member that you just can't help talking bad about. When they ask you for help, do you give it begrudgingly? Do you seek to make life even more miserable for them? What Jesus is suggesting here is that we go on the offense, but that we go on the offense with love and we seek to love others, as hard as that may be. To show a radical generosity, a kindness that reflects him. Because the deal is this, guys. Our lives are supposed to show other people what he's like. And so we're supposed to win others over with the way that we love. So if you are always a sourpuss in your social circles... Constantly getting angry or offended or giving as you get or maybe creating drama wherever you go, agitating others. Does that put Jesus on display? I don't see many instances. In fact, none that I can think of where Jesus was creating drama. He would go in, he would address a situation, he would do something. But the drama that followed, that was not his intent. His intent was to set things right or to communicate something or to show people what God's kingdom looked like. But often we are the people that stir up drama just to stir up drama. So who would want the life that we have if we're constantly miserable, if we're constantly stirring things up, if we're never satisfied? Jesus says that we're to love our enemies and to do good to those that hate us. So that's the first part there. And then the second Challenges, the second two challenges and responses. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now, this one actually takes it up a notch, doesn't it? Jesus challenges us to repay evil with good and to pray for those who abuse us. But Jesus doesn't just tell us to do this. Jesus actually does this himself. You'll remember this from Luke 23. He's in the process of giving his life. He's been beaten. He's been bruised. He's been battered. He's been whipped. And Jesus looks out over all the people, including the ones who are responsible, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a prayer. Another example we find in the book of Acts is Stephen. And What's happening in this story is Stephen is like full of the Holy Spirit and he is busting out the gospel. He's tearing, telling everybody, listen, this is the way that it is. Jesus came for you. He loves you. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they start stoning him. This is in Acts 7, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. 
Another interesting thing about the story is a couple of verses right before this. It places Paul, the guy that becomes the apostle, at the scene. But here's the deal. He wasn't the apostle yet. He was actually one of the greatest enemies of the faith. And so there's this moment where he's actually the coat check guy in this situation. Everybody's dropping their coats at his feet to keep track of them so that they can get full range of motion to chuck rocks at this guy. There's Paul. And I have to think in my mind that there was something about this scene that if I were Paul watching this, there's no way that this could not have had some kind of impact on me. Here's this guy dying, giving his life, and he's praying for me. What a prayer to pray in the face of anger and violence. And then who would have believed that Paul, right, later on, one of the guys that's the main source of persecution, he's responsible for all of these early believers being persecuted, imprisoned, and dying. That he could repent and turn. That he could embrace Jesus. And not only that, he actually becomes one of the greatest allies and advocates for the establishment of God's kingdom throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Talk about a changed life. Jesus radically changed Paul's life, and we see that in his response to hatred here. It's very similar to what Jesus said. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, And we labor working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Basically, guys, we're the trash. (laughs) And he went on to say, I don't write this to shame you or to make you feel bad. I write this to encourage you and to challenge you to imitate me, Paul says. And I used to think that that was kind of this arrogant thing. Like Paul's like, look at me. I'm amazing. Look how I suffer and I still encourage. I used to read it like that. But when I read it again for this, there's almost this sense of Paul saying, listen, guys, I know this is a hard word for you. But if I can do this, you can do this too. Or like Paul saying, listen, if God can change me, you know what I did. If God can change me, he can change anybody. How often do we have the faith to pray for our enemies and those that abuse us, believing that God can change them? We pray a lot here at D.C. We pray in big groups. We pray in small groups. We pray one-on-one with people. We pray for the personal needs needs in people's lives uh, or the people that they care about. We pray for people that are hurting. We pray for the big needs within our church community, for guidance, for direction. We pray just like we did. For the global community, the church at large, right? Our brothers and sisters all around the world. We pray all the time. But how often do we pray for our enemies? For the people who insult and ridicule and make fun of Jesus in this world and in the media. How often do we pray for those who work hard to undermine the gospel and cause doubt in the lives of other believers? How often do we pray for those who dedicate their energy around the world to destroying God's people, even with physical violence and death? How often do we pray for them? Often our first response is to lash out in kind, to launch an attack, to defend the truth, to proclaim our injustice on Facebook, to line up 29 videos on YouTube supporting our treatise, right? Marshalling public opinion to our side, often we end up sinning in anger 
in these situations. So what if anytime someone offended us, especially in the face of persecution, that's what we're talking about here. What if we did something different? We actually prayed for the heart of the human being involved and asked God to move upon their lives and even bless them in a powerful way. What if our first response to any situation, any situation, became one of love? What if we could be those people? What if we truly believed that prayer could change things and that God loved everyone else as much as he loves us? So you know what? We're going to do that right now. I'm going to ask Mike, one of our elders, to come up here. And all I said was, hey, Mike, we're going to pray for our enemies. So I have no idea what this is going to be. But something we need to do. Would you please stand? And while it is certainly our collective and individual custom to close our eyes and bow our heads in prayer, today I invite you to keep your eyes open. And I invite you to a response to our petitions to God as we pray for those who we might think to be our enemies. And when I say, Lord, hear our prayer, your response is, Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Father, Adonai, you are the creator of all things. You are sovereign, and you have given to us a world that was right side up when it was given to us, and yet we have turned it upside down through our sin and through our disobedience. But in your right side up world, Lord, there are no enemies. There is no one that is against us, for we are all for one another, Lord. And so, Father, for those outside of our country who would threaten the security of our country, we pray that you would give them the shalom, the peace of your love that you offer us. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Father, for those who may be in our family, who have hurt us, or perhaps those we have hurt, we ask for you to give them the same shalom, the same peace and love that you give to us. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Father, for those who are in our lives and perhaps we have once called friend, but now we have forgotten the closeness with which we held them, we ask for you to give to them the shalom and the love that you offer to us. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. And Lord, for all of the doors of the church, and there are so many different ones that we call ourselves to from time to time, Father. And we have split ourselves from one another inside the church, Lord, and we have created this denomination or that. We call out for our brothers and our sisters, Lord, to be given the same shalom, the same peace and love that you have given to us. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. And for each individual in this room, Father, that has someone, anyone, from whom they are very distant now, 
And there is no peace. There is no shalom between us and them, Lord. We ask, Father, that you would bring your shalom, your love, and your peace into that relationship. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. And now please bow your head and close your eyes. Holy Father, we ask these things because there is no shalom. There is no peace. There is no love but that which comes from you, Father. These petitions, Father, come from the hearts of people that are begging to you, Lord, that are inviting you into our lives. And with boldness, Father, we are inviting you into the lives of others as well. Because we are called to love those, Lord. And rather than be the defiant people, Lord, that have turned this world upside down, Mm -hmm. we are answering today the call that you put to the Samaritan who stopped by the side of the road and helped someone in need, Father. We are responding to the call that you have given to our hearts, Lord, that you have offered to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, through Yeshua. And we are asking you, Lord, to step into history and come alongside all of us, Lord, all of humanity. Sinners and saints alike, Lord, we ask you to be in the middle and to be in the midst of all the who we are. We pray all of these things in the name of your Holy Son, in the name of your Holy Spirit, Father. And we offer ourselves to you to make good on the things that we have asked you to do in us. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. You guys may be seated. That was good. So right off the bat, Jesus, as he challenges us, because this is a challenge. I mean, I'm sure you're already thinking of people as he prayed. Wow, I didn't know I had so many enemies, right? Right off the bat, Jesus makes it clear that it's our hearts that guide our response. Not our circumstances or the way that we are treated. And we live in this world that's just, it's really a reactionary world. Where I want to give as good as I get, you know. But Jesus says, no, it's not supposed to be that way. So when Jesus tells us not to retaliate, I want to be clear. He's talking specifically about personal action. He doesn't extend that to the institutional level. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5, it's a very similar teaching to the one that we're going through. But one difference that we find there is Jesus shares this passage, this little scripture, right before he goes into what we're reading today. He says, you've heard... That it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then he goes on to say, but I say you should love and so forth. What Jesus is referring to here is a passage that's found in Exodus 21 uh, verse 24. But the original context of what this is here is specific. And it's been taken to this place to talk about personal revenge and all these different things, especially in our time. But I think it was starting to happen then too. And that's why he addresses it. But all this was about was about equal repayment as far as a court of law was concerned for debts or damages to a victim of your actions. Okay? So again, it's used in revenge, but Jesus is saying that's not what this is about. This idiom uh, was not ever created for that purpose. It was actually a figure of speech. 
And it was all about compensation and making sure that the law was followed measure for measure. But they didn't actually go around poking out eyes and knocking out teeth in order, well, you're, they knocked out your tooth, come here, right? And they take it out and then they hand it to you. That doesn't serve anyone, right? That's not helpful at all. So here's an example. If I caused an accident and I caused someone to lose their arm, let's say, in that accident, that would be really bad and very, very sad, right? And so I would not go into a court of law and the judge wouldn't saw my arm off and hand it to the other guy. That would make no sense. There would be no justice in that. But what he would do is he would decide what, that, what the injured person was entitled to as a result of their loss. And obviously nothing could ever replace that arm. But the job of the judge would be to do their best to make sure that that person at least had some type of compensation uh, for lost work, for all the different things that they would encounter as a result of the injury that happened because of my negligence. That's what we're talking about. So Jesus does not ask the law courts to set aside justice for the sake of mercy here. He's talking about a personal thing. Uh, would it be righteous if another person, for example, had injured someone, and then the court they go into court and they follow the instructions that came before this, and they're like, well, you know what? Yeah, you injured him, uh, but you know what? Let him injure you again. Or this person attacked you. Let him attack you again. No, Jesus isn't talking about that. That wouldn't be justice at all. We're talking about mercy and justice here together. C.S. Lewis said this, Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. We should also note, because this is another question that I had, Jesus isn't suggesting that governments adopt policies of pacifism or appeasement towards tyrants or adversaries. Because our governments have a responsibility to protect the people. That's part of what their job is. And so we see this in Scripture as well. But I will say it's still a tension that we live with, trying to balance these things out. And so I wanted to recognize that. But in no way does Jesus imply that the idea of letting the punishment fit the crime goes away. Jesus is only saying that that belongs in a court of law. Only they have the right to make that decision or to take vengeance upon transgressors. But there's one distinction that I want to be very, very clear about here today because I feel like this is one that maybe you're thinking about as we talk about this. Jesus is not saying that people should submit to physical abuse. That's not what he's saying here. And this passage has been misused to keep people in abusive marriages and abusive situations with their family. And let me just say that if you're a person in this room today and someone has used the Bible to keep you in an abusive situation... I just want you to know that I'm sorry that that happened. It's not right. It's not how it's supposed to be, and it's not what Jesus is talking about here. And if you are in an abusive situation today, and you need help, this is a place where you can find it. Come to me. Come to one of the other leaders that you see up here afterwards. We want to help you. Submitting to physical abuse is not what Jesus is advocating here. Nor is Jesus suggesting that we give up boundaries in our lives and enable self-destructive behaviors in other people. Because that's another question that I had. When we turn the other cheek, it's always in the context of a personal affront or persecution. So in Jewish culture, the slap of the face, right, turning the other cheek actually means something. It could be employed as public humiliation. And if you're familiar with, like, the swashbuckling films, you know, where the guy takes off the glove and he goes... Right, and smacks the guy's face. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like as a challenge to a duel? That's what we're talking about here, that turning the other cheek. Often, they would employ that smack, usually like a backhand, 
as this public humiliation or even a sign of rejection or maybe even excommunication from a faith community. And so Jesus is setting them up. He's like, listen, guys, when these things happen or they start to happen, don't retaliate. We should not retaliate or seek personal revenge, but we should love. So in my mind, as I think about this, it's almost like Jesus is saying, guess what? It's opposite day forever. Right? We're going to be the people that repay evil with good. So if someone hurts you, you respond with the appropriate loving action to match compassion for evil whenever possible and to go the extra mile. And so he continues in Luke 6.32. Get us there. There we go. So here's what he says after this. After he's challenged us in a pretty difficult way, he says, And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So just when we think we're cool, Jesus kicks it up yet another notch. Right? The kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, boisterous, Absurd generosity. You don't seem to be too excited about that. An absurd generosity. Like there's no way that we deserve this treatment. We deserve nothing. And yet here he is. Offering us everything. It's like think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person. And then just go ahead and do that. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and go do that for them, expecting nothing in return. Because let's be honest, married folks in the room, fellas, when you're doing those dishes, she knows what you're thinking. It's like, ah, she's going to be so happy that I did a chore. She's going to be so happy that I did a chore, right? You guys awake? Okay, just making sure. Gotcha. Or how about this one? Think about the people whom you are tempted to be angry with or to be nasty with and lavish generosity on them instead. This is challenging. This is hard. This is very difficult to live. But even saying these things out loud, I can't help but smile a little bit. Because there's something that's really freeing. And Jesus knows this, right? We're, we're talking about praying for our arch enemies. We're talking about Roadrunner praying for Wiley Coyote. We're talking about Superman praying for Lex Luthor here. There's something about these commandments that isn't harsh, that isn't oppressive. But it's free. And Jesus breathes that new life into us. And there's an energy that comes with the thought of loving and blessing someone else, especially when they least expect it. And all you have to do is go out and just look at news articles because everybody is saying this right now. The power of generosity. Read my new book and it'll tell you in five easy steps how to have more freedom and happiness in your life. 
All you have to do is bless other people, to do fun things for people. Acts, or acts of random kindness, that's what it is. Jesus was way ahead of that. It removes all of the selfish motivation from the way that we give, and it centers the act completely on God and His will and His purposes, because that's what we're here for. That's what we, we were made. We were created for Him and Him alone to glorify Him with our entire lives. But we want a rule book. We want the checklist. We want to know all of the do's and the don'ts. We want to know what has to be done. So at the end of the day, we can cross our arms and we can sit back and we say, you know, I lived a really good moral day today. I took my Bible to church. I read my passage on you version. I even wrote a note. I got the gold star for showing up with a quarter for offering in Sunday school. This is the best day ever, Jesus! That's what we want to be. We want to be told what to do so that we can just do it. So we can fulfill the requirements and then move on. Listen, folks. Churches are full of good moral people that are far from God's spirit. Did Pastor Bill just say? Yes, he did. Churches are full of people that are great and that are moral, but they're far from God's spirit. They come into church, they do their thing, they follow the rules, they don't make waves, and then they leave and they're no different. And sometimes that's me too. And it was no different in the time of Jesus either. But instead of providing the checklist for living, Jesus blows the whole thing up and he just says, listen, what if instead of rules for living, I just became the ruler of your life? Wouldn't that just make things so much more simple? What if my Holy Spirit just like guided you? And so you could actually, in situation to situation, make the right decision and that you would know how to face everything with the best compassion and love possible in any given situation. You don't have time to go down the list of rules and figure out, okay, I've got this going on and this and this and A equals B equals C. Okay, this person just said this to me. How do I respond in compassion? Or it could just be, hey, guess what? That person that just asked you for a dollar, give them ten. What if your heart and my heart were changed so that we could live in abundance in any situation? In the face of all the evil that the world throws at us. So the command to love and to go the extra mile that Jesus gives us, all of this is in the face, in his day, of the worst persecution ever. We're talking about any time a major festival was happening in Jerusalem, uh, the Romans would line the roads with crucified people just to remind everybody, hey, by the way, while you stop in for Passover, and the city swells to 150,000 people, don't get any bright ideas. Jesus is saying, listen, judgment is God's alone. And we'll talk about that more next week. But he challenges us to show mercy, compassion, and love. But no list of rules could ever be enough. Jesus wants us to be involved in the lives of others so that we can respond with the proper compassion and love that's required. If you don't know people, you don't know what they need. Loving those who come against us, doing good and giving in the face of hatred, and even blessing when cursed. That's hard. 
Can you imagine that? Someone cursing you to your face. Listen, man, I just, can we take a moment so I can bless you? What do you do with that? Praying for those who drag us through the mud. But this last line is always the kicker for me. And it always reminds me who I am and who he is. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. If I could have Zach and anyone that wants to pray with others, go ahead and come up here. I would appreciate it. Let me just spread out here. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. As human beings, we love to compare. We love to classify. We love to say, well, you know what? I, yeah, I get it. I've got some issues, but I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I've got my hang-ups, but have you seen her, Jesus? But the truth of the matter is, folks, sin is sin. And all have sinned. Scripture tells us, and have fallen short of the glory of God. When someone crosses us or commits an injustice against us, what do we want? We want justice. We want them to pay for it. And a lot of times, we want them to pay even more. Take them down! We want to throw the book at them. But when we cross someone else, or we fall into sin, what do we want then? We want mercy, right? Jesus, you know I struggle with this. We almost feel like we deserve it sometimes in a way. Well, God, you know my heart. You know I didn't mean it quite like that. Jesus says, listen, the playing field is even. There's no caste system in the kingdom. There's no hierarchy here. From the richest to the poorest, we are all humans that we are created in the image of our creator. And therefore, we all have inherent value to him. No matter what we've done, no matter where we come from, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter who we've been evil to or how we've been evil. Every one of us, every human being, scripture says, we've all been created in his image. And every one of us needs a savior. Every one of us. God reached his hand down when you were crusty and dirty. When you were in the muck and the mire of life. When you were completely out of touch. When you were turned away. When you were far from him. When you were the prodigal on the road. He reached down. And he said, I love you. Come to me. John three sixteen. We all know it. For God so loved that he gave the world his only son. And whoever believes in him... They're going to have life with him forever, right? Forever. But I love how it starts because the order is important. God so loved that he gave. It wasn't anything that I did. There wasn't anything that you did. You didn't deserve it. God so loved that he gave. And the same is true for your enemy, for the person that's in your life that you just cannot stand to be around. God so loved that he gave for them too. Our God is not gloomy. He's not a penny pincher. He didn't create us out of deficiency or loneliness. He's so full of wildness and wonder 
and creativity that it had to pour out of him. It had to be expressed. And here we are. He had so much love to give that it overflowed into creation. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't need us. He didn't need our worship. We like to think so sometimes, but there was no deficiency. His love is extravagant, and that's why we're here. Our lives are a gift, and they are to be lived in response to his great mercy. Man. Our lives are a gift. Every one of you, you're a gift. To the people in your lives, you are worth something to God. He has a plan. He has a purpose for you. Your life is a gift. And that gift is given to you so that you can live in response to his great mercy. When we worship, when we work, when we spend time with others, everywhere we go, we should go in gratitude for that great mercy. The mercy that our Father gave us. We know all too well the capabilities of our hearts and our minds and what we could have been or maybe even what we are right now without Jesus. So how much more should we be merciful to others? When we bless those that curse us, we're demonstrating that we truly believe in a God that answers prayer. When we bless those that curse us, we are saying that we are confident in who he is and his sovereign direction of the events of our lives and of this world. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, we come before you humbly and we just say that we recognize that it's only because of you that we exist. It's only because of your love and your mercy that we're here. That we even had the opportunity to come before you. That we had the invitation to turn from the lives that we were living selfishly and turn towards you. It's all because of you. We thank you for your son that you willingly gave because you loved us. God, I just pray that today as we struggle with kind of a difficult challenge to love in the face of evil, give to pray to bless this is so much easier said than done but we have your son who was the ultimate example of all of these things and he endured all of these things so that we could come to know you we were bought with the price 
but we were also free when he busted out of that grave. So God, I pray that we would live our lives not only in freedom, but that we would use that freedom to reflect your glory. And that in the places we need to make things right in our lives, God, that we would. If there are people that we need to go to and apologize to, that we would do that. If there are things that we need to surrender, bitterness that we're holding on to, enemies that need to be friends are friends that have become enemies. God, help us to leave that in your hands and show us what we need to do to make that right. We just ask that your spirit would guide our hearts as we take this time to worship you and think about these things and how you would have us respond. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.